There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. On this latest edition of Joyce Kaufman's No Restraint Podcast, I wanted to share some thoughts with you about a number of things. First and foremost, Super Bowl 58 or 57, I don't know, just took place. And I had an opportunity to have my 16-year-old, well, he'll be 16 in two weeks, my 16-year-old grandson, Dayon, and my 69-year-old husband, Billy, carrying on over the Chiefs and the Eagles. And it showed me clearly why football is so important in America, even if I don't get it, and even if I don't like it, even if the only thing that I got out of the game is that Patrick Mahomes is very cute and Rihanna is looking a little round. Hope she doesn't get shot down by F-16s, but so be it. They needed to verbally duel as the gladiators on the field were fighting to the death for a trophy and bragging rights. And then I read a great piece in the free press by a relatively new author, at least he's new to me, and he was literally talking about football and how really football is kind of important in this day and age. And he brought up some of the thoughts that I was actually having when I watched the generation of my husband and myself and the generation of our grandson, well, meeting proverbially at the uh, football arena. He wrote this piece. His name was Ethan Strauss or Ethan Strauss. Not sure. Everybody's got a different pronunciation now. I don't know if he identifies as he, she, him, her, it, they, or whatever. But he wrote this guest post on Barry Weiss's The Free Press about how uh, you know, he he was comparing football to so many other things that men really get carried away with, in my opinion. He said, I knew a guy in college who was soft-spoken, he was smart, he was good, he was kind, and he joined the military, and all of us were trying to figure out why, what possessed this uh, kid from Berkeley Hills and I'm sure his parents wondered the same thing, what possessed him to join the military? I'm sure they tried to figure it out desperately. But his choice to enlist wasn't about 9-11, and it wasn't about Iraq. He didn't have any fantasies about saving innocent lives or raising the American flag atop Iwo Jima. He didn't think about whether the uniform would get him a girlfriend or what exciting, exotic places he'd get to travel to and see. It was something entirely different. What War was just in him. 
He loved reading about it. He loved learning about weapons and battles. He needed to do this, to kill and risk being killed. And no, he wasn't a school shooter and he wasn't an incel. He didn't have some kind of rage burning within him for people of different colors or different ethnicities or different religious beliefs. No, 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 no. When you think about him or when I think about him, I think about a person that really just didn't fit any molds. The idea of this person would be very confusing to a lot of people, especially the people who grew up in the free-to-be, you-and-me, post-draft America. But if you met this guy, Ethan said it all made sense. There are many such men. He said, I'm not like one of them, and perhaps I'm in the majority. The ranks of the unwarlike might even be growing as we speak, thanks to the modern and sedentary lifestyle that erodes our primordial selves. But the war wanters remain, holdovers from a time when we actually needed them to want it, which is, say, really almost all of human history. Of course, it's good that there's less war today, although there's some debate about whether the world is, in fact, becoming any less violent, but there's no disputing the number of war-related deaths has plummeted since World War II. And while modern life may not be as fulfilling as it was, once was, the fact remains you're unlikely to die on a beach separated from your entrails. Still, the old imperatives remain. There's war within us, whether or not there's one to wage. And the NFL gives Americans that war as a spectacle, really, week after week, much like gladiators in the proverbial arena. So at 6.30 last night, Eastern time, the biggest spectacle of them all, the Super Bowl, happened. And that's where I could see in my husband and my grandson where they channel those ancient animal spirits into a highly commercialized event that ends with a shiny trophy, a lot of people jumping up and down, a couple of cars overturned if Philly happens to be in the mix, and a, a, a bunch of fireworks. We're supposed to celebrate that. And I think maybe we should, because you probably heard all the arguments, and I'm one of the persons who waged them, lodged against this most popular sport in America. And there are plenty of them in the aftermath of Buffalo Bill's safety, DeMar Hamlin, who nearly lost his life in the aftermath of getting body slammed or doing a body slam during a January 2nd game with the Cincinnati Bengals. The New York Times, reacting to Hamlin's on-field cardiac arrest, declared, we're all complicit in the NFL's violent spectacle. Ryan Clark, the NFL player turned ESPN commentator, informed us, tonight we get to see a side of football that is extremely ugly, a side of football that no one ever wants to see and never, ever, ever wants to admit exists. I remember when I used to have these arguments about boxing. Today's anti-football arguments are more racially frightened than those of the pre-Colin Kaepernick past. After Hamlin's near-death experience, Scientific American fretted the terrifyingly ordinary nature of football's violence disproportionately affects black men. Well, 
Of course it does, because there are disproportionately more black men in the NFL, and particularly more black men in the position that DeMar Hamlin plays in, running backs and linebackers and tackles. Well, the violence does affect athletes in a terrifyingly ordinary way. There have been NFL players, even great ones, who actually kill themselves because of the brain injuries or this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, which appears to be an almost unavoidable risk for players who engage in frequent collisions, especially linebackers. Boston University just released a study showing that 92% of NFL players suffer from CTE. About a decade ago, writers at all the high-end publications started calling for an end to football. Malcolm Gladwell dubbed it a moral abomination and predicted its imminent obsolescence. This is a sport that's living in the past, he said in 2014, that has no connection to the realities to the game right now and no connection to American society. Well, we now can pretty much be sure that Gladwell was wrong. In 2022, 82 of the top 100 TV shows in America were NFL games, and the top 50 most viewed sporting events were football games, or events that immediately followed football games. By contrast, in 2016, only 33 of the top 50 were football-related. The country has lost interest in so much else, but football remains a huge draw and, in fact, is gaining relative market share. So what did Mr. Gladwell miss? He couldn't see that football violence is an eternal violence. It only seems as if it's a relic of a less civilized time because it's been with us for so long. This inability to see things clearly, I suspect, is more prevalent among the likes of Gladwell and, to be perfectly frank, people like me and other members of the mainstream or lamestream or conservative media. The participants themselves, the ones who get punished by the game, are not so dismissive. Like soldiers on the battlefield, football players have to watch their buddies' backs, lest an enemy break it. One theme of sports writer Tyler Dunn's The Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football, is that these men accept their fate, painful though it may be. Dunn once said, I haven't talked to one football player who has said I would not do it again when they're in pain. Such players do exist, but they're unusual. A 2013 Washington Post survey found that of the nearly 90% of retired NFL players who experience daily pain, 91% of them attribute it to football, while 93% of all retired NFL players report that they're happy that they played. In other words, the vast majority of ex-players who suffer from their playing do not regret their football years. The draw of the gridiron is so powerful that its participants consider it a well-deserved bargain. It's worth experiencing lifelong pain in return for the privilege of playing the sport, however briefly. Gladwell once asked, how different are dogfighting and football? And the implication was that the young men of the NFL, hailing from the inner city, were funneled into this game like so many mistreated pit bulls. 
But if that same men tell us year after retiring, all these football players, that they're happy with the choice they made, well, to consider them victims is to deprive them of their agency. It should be pointed out that this lends the NFL a great deal of authenticity. By contrast, the NBA is viewed by many as overrun with players uncommitted to their fans, teams, or fellow players. This is due to so-called player empowerment with superstars like Kyrie Irving jumping from one team to another in quick succession and load management, which gives players frequent rests, allowing them to skip games. This may explain why in 2017, an average of 20.4 million viewers tuned into the finals, and in 2022, that figure was 12.4 million, despite a near-perfect matchup of Steph Curry's Warriors against the Boston Celtics. Not the NFL. The players' willingness to get hurt tells viewers they're for real. Maybe the players are motivated by money. Maybe it's all a pretext to sell beer. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But when you're out there, between the lines, on that sacred ground, you really could get hurt. People respect that. When Hamlin woke up, the first question he asked was, did we win? Central to Hamlin's unbreakable bond with the game, like that of countless other players, is the feeling of brotherhood one experiences on the field, which mimics the same feeling, presumably, that one encounters in the foxhole. In basketball, your teammates depend on you, but they don't depend on you to keep them safe. In football, your mistake can hurt your teammate. You're not just responsible for yourself. You have a duty to watch your buddy's back, lest an enemy break it. In any given Sunday, Oliver Stone's meditation about football's hold on the American mind, the coach, who was played by Al Pacino, waxes poetic about what retired quarterbacks miss most about playing football. It wasn't the girls or the glory. You know what they missed? The coach tells us what he missed were those other guys looking at him in the huddle. Those 11 guys, every one of them, seeing things the same way. A commonly heard refrain from athletes. Modernity has given us much, including the alienation and isolation of the daily digitized, compartmentalized grind. We feel more than ever cut off from other human beings. If I don't depend on you for survival, then how badly do I need you? And how much do you need me? We can pine for a new kind of human being who doesn't crave that ancient animal spirit. Or we can be happy that we have football, its many pitfalls notwithstanding. We can feel reassured that the violence on the field is orderly, and insofar as this is possible, it's civilized. Football is that special place where for three hours or so, we get to peer deeply into the way things used to be, sort of. Of course, we should be overjoyed that most countries no longer fight world wars or wars of religion or massive bloody civil wars. Well, not all countries, but most. Nobody sane wants that death. But everyone wants the stakes, the drama, and the bonds that come with it. And it's not just the bonds of the players. When I watched my grandson and husband last night, they were the same gladiators. One was for the Chiefs, my grandson. One was for the Eagles, my husband. And every single play erupted whosever team had scored. 
And it was amazing, the commentary and the bickering and the, well, I don't even know how to call it, but I guess it's, you know, guys call each other names and make all kinds of weird sounds when they're watching football. But the one thing you know is that at the end of the evening, they're both going to say, that was a great game. Your guys did really well. They both played really well. I mean, it was amazing to watch them because it didn't matter which team won. What ended up mattering to them was that the game was good, that it was close, that it was hard fought, and that they had got to spend, I don't know, four hours together, jeering, playing with each other, and just being in the same room. And by the way, consuming vast quantities of chicken wings and cheese chili fries and cake. Pretty disgusting, but hey, boys will be boys. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. There was another piece that a guy named Rob Henderson wrote in the Free Press about something called The Last Us, or The Last of Us, which is one of these HBO uh, apocalyptic dystopia shows that my husband probably watches, although I don't remember him ever mentioning it, but it's something that I would probably never watch. In the third episode of this, uh, The Last of Us, a survivalist named Bill finds a man trapped in the hole that he has dug on his property, and he's terrified that the intruder is infected with the fungus that's sweeping across the globe, can you say COVID-19, and turning human hosts into vampiric zombies. Bill points a gun at the man and demands to know if he's armed. And at first, the man wonders whether he should lie and say yes. Instead, he tells the truth and introduces himself as Frank, saying he hasn't eaten in two days and needs food. And though Bill is suspicious, as are we, the viewers, he reluctantly invites Frank into his home. He offers him a hot meal and a shower, and ultimately, the two fall in love leading to a nearly two-decade romance in the midst of an apocalypse. The lesson of the story is clear. Before Frank, Bill was only surviving. By choosing to trust Frank, he found a reason to live. Well, there's a reason beyond the incredible production value why HBO's new series is such a hit, with 18 million viewers tuning in to the debut episode in the first week alone. The show's plot about a global pandemic that hits Jakarta in 2003 and takes down humanity in a matter of days has some echoes of real life. But we enjoy seeing how characters cope when they're up against an even more terrifying disease than the one we've all just endured. But there's something deeper going on that has to do with our collective yearning to live in a society where we rely on and trust one another. Those living in the hellscape of this HBO show seem to have more of those virtues than we do. This is, of course, out of necessity. As in every dystopian story, the characters in The Last of Us have no choice because their survival is always at stake. Until well into the 19th century, 
This was the usual state of all human societies. People were forced to trust each other and forge social bonds to survive a dangerous world. In his 2019 book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, Yale physician and sociologist Nicholas Christakis writes, for most of our history as a species, up until about two centuries ago, humans all lived on the edge of death. This reality has radically shifted with the advent of modern technology, and we've all been relatively material abundant, stable governments and social services for the most part, which have allowed us to live longer, more prosperous lives while relying less on help or financial support from our community. These days, in a lot of prosperous U.S. coastal cities, it would be considered bizarre simply to ring your neighbor's door to ask for salt or flour. But when I was a kid growing up, that happened all the time. Neighbors helped one another. They shared what they had, even if they didn't have very much. Well, not everyone in the world has the luxury of Amazon Prime. And in those places, you can still see this need for survival that forges strong social bonds. If you visit Malaysia, which is a developing country where the average income is only about $11,000 per year, inequality is pervasive. Glittering skyscrapers are three blocks away from residential wooden huts. Housing is often makeshift and overcrowded, with many families living in small, cramped dwellings made of corrugated metal and wooden planks and even cardboard. Many homes in the poorest areas have battered and worn down cement flooring, no carpet, no hardwood, no ceramic tiles, just cement. Hmm, sounds a little like the area adjacent to where my son lives in Los Angeles or even close to where my daughter lives in San Francisco, but I digress. And yet social capital in Malaysia is high. People in the community regularly drop by to socialize and offer support and deliver food to one another. I witnessed a nine-year-old boy regularly check in on his elderly neighbors to feed their dogs and sweep their patio and run their errands. In contrast, Americans have been slowly descending into dysfunction and alienation, a problem made worse by the decline of organized religion, the breakdown of the family, and of course, the recent lockdowns. Many people are aware that Americans' trust in scientists and police officers, in the media, and in institutions in general has declined. This is true, especially among the young. 73% of Americans under 30 believe people just look out for themselves most of the time, compared with only 48% of Americans over 65. Similarly, 60% of Americans under 30 believe most people can't be trusted, compared with 29% of Americans over 65. I remember when I was young thinking that I couldn't trust anyone over 30, so I don't know if this is really that big a difference. A study from the Pew Research Group reports that most young adults in the United States see others as selfish, as exploitative, and untrustworthy. Meanwhile, a shocking 2019 survey from YouGov found that one in five millennials reported having zero friends, not a single friend. Whew. By contrast, in 1972, about half of Americans believed that most people can be trusted. Today, that figure has dropped to 30%. 
And in a widely cited 2000 paper, the sociologist Diego Gambetta observed that in the ancestral environment where early human communities lived as hunter-gatherers, trust and friendship were much more intertwined. He noted that modern society has reduced how much we rely on our friends in order to stay alive, writing that we're free not to depend on them. These days, we tend to believe that somebody has to earn our trust before we can enter into a relationship with them. But that's actually upside down. Trust is not a precondition for cooperation. Cooperation is a precondition for trust. Dependence is how we come to know who we can truly count on. It is only in times of dire need that we actually learn this lesson. Post-apocalyptic tales are stories about trust disguised as stories about disaster. As fun as it is to watch people battle fungus-infected zombies, it's even more thrilling to see paranoid people forced to trust one another and even discover they were right to do so. You see, we don't want to live in a dystopia, but we do long for a world where people can overcome their feelings of alienation, inauthenticity, fear, and isolation. And HBO's show hints at the possibility of this world. So essentially, what we're told to believe is that The Last of Us actually reveals the best of us. Now, of course, I would deviate from the piece that was written on Free Press in one very important way. I cannot understand why the relationship between Bill and Frank had to end up being a romantic one. It seems as if we have all decided that there's no such thing as close friendship or true friendship between two men or between two women or even between a man and a woman. Instead, in order to achieve any kind of trust or any kind of close relationship, we're being told that we must have a sexual attraction to the other human being. And even if we are not sure about that sexual attraction, we ought to presume to have it. And that really troubles me. It's why I'm so reluctant to accept all of this transgenderism craziness that's going on in society today. People have become so desperate to give in, particularly or to fit in, particularly teenage girls, And we know this because they show up at transgender clinics in clusters coming out of the same high schools, the same neighborhoods, the same dance clubs. We understand that everybody wants a sense of belonging. And if they feel even remotely isolated from one another, that they will begin to question if what they're feeling is accurate and if there isn't a quick fix to make them feel better. I don't know what a quick fix Uh, cutting off body parts on young children is, but I do know this. We have started accepting things that, on the face of it, are so unacceptable that our kids have had no choice but to go along. And that's what I see as the one real difference in how we approach this show, The Last of Us, because had they just allowed the two survivors to become close friends and help one another, would the story have lost any of its impact or any of its meaning? Of course not. It actually might have enhanced 
its meaning. But instead, the woke culture in Hollywood, the woke culture in media, decided it had to make some kind of point about the LGBTQ agenda in order to become a hit show and in order to drive home the fact that two men falling in love with one another is exactly the same as a man and a woman falling in love with one another or and that two women falling in love with one another is still not quite as accepted. It's just bizarre how we've allowed the woke culture to challenge things that simply aren't true. It is not the same. There's a purpose behind the joining of a man and a woman. I was thinking recently of the number of women that I know who are gay and who are living in relationships, long-term relationships, mind you, because women are nesters. And if you put two women together, they'll probably stay together for a long time. Um, But a lot of them, a lot of the women that I know, come into this knowledge of who they are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, when they've already been married to a man and already had children, children of both genders. And then they decide that in fact, they've been living some kind of lie and they are going to now live their truth, as they call it, and they begin to have romantic relationships with women and eventually end up in a long-term relationship with another woman or in the case of men, with another man. But in the case of men, you don't see them bringing into these relationships, into these gay relationships, children from a previous marriage to a woman. As a matter of fact, I don't know of one single instance where that has happened. The only way that a man gets to bring children from a marriage to a woman into a gay relationship is if somehow somebody decides they're transgendered. And we've just accepted this and shrugged and said, okay, uh, we're going to accept this and we're going to make it make sense, even if the biological realities don't make any sense whatsoever. And so there's so much that goes on in front of our children, on television, and in our homes, and in our neighborhoods, and on uh, movie screens, and in books, that our children are thoroughly confused. I was grateful last night when I saw the 69-year-old man and the 16-year-old boy just get together as two fast friends, because they have been for a long time, and watched gladiators dueling it out in the NFL, because during that period of time, the bond that formed had nothing to do with sexual attraction or acceptance of gender or any such thing. It was just good old-fashioned bonding. We need to do more of that, whether it's to survive in this crazy world or whether it's to ensure that we are doing the decent and the moral thing forever. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to download our 850 WFTL app. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.